Welcome back, brethren. It's always good to spend time with you. And today we are in our third segment of our series entitled True Pastoring. Today we will be in 1 Timothy chapter 3. And I'm excited. I, uh, I, there is nothing greater in this life than to walk in the calling that God has called you in. For those of you that have been pastoring for a short while or a long while, or think that God is maybe calling you into the pastorate, or the teaching of the Word of God, if you will, um, I'm welcome again. I'm glad to have you back. Today we'll be looking at the qualifications, if you will, of a, a an overseer, or if you have the King James, a bishop. What are those qualifications, and what 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 precedes them in, in, in the calling of a pastor? You know, we are Christians first and foremost. We are called by him, called to be him, and followers of Jesus Christ. And then as we have seen from several passages, uh, such as uh, Ephesians chapter 4, where God himself, Christ gives gifted men to the church. He calls some to be pastors and teachers, evangelists, prophets, what have you, for strictly for building up. The body of Christ, for maturing Christians, discipling them, if you will, teaching them sound doctrine, so that they may grow up and not be swayed to and fro with every wind of doctrine. And as always, we want to just show from the scriptures what a true shepherd, what his work involves, what is he to truly teach and do. Today, as we look at this third chapter, again, I just invite you to read along with me, uh, and we'll get back into our text. Again, this is 1 Timothy chapter 3. This is a faithful saying. If a man desires the position of a bishop or an overseer, he desires a good work. An overseer then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable able to teach, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetousness, one who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. The Bible says in verse 5, For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? Verse 6, Not a novice, not a new convert, lest being puffed up with pride he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. Moreover, he must have a good testimony of those who are outside, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Likewise, deacons must be reverent, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy for money, holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. But let those first be tested. Let them serve as deacons, being found blameless. Likewise, the wives must be reverent, not slanders, temperate, faithful in all things. Let deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children in their own house as well. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a good standing, a great boldness in the faith, which is in Christ Jesus. These things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly. But if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourselves. Listen to this, brethren. In the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of the truth. In the end of this great chapter, I sing, without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. 
that God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and received up into glory. That chapter is is so filled with character. And this is, I think, brethren, what we want to aim at today. The character of the shepherd, the character of the overseer of the church of God, which, which, by the way, as we've just read, is the pillar and ground or the foundation of the truth. You know, 1 Corinthians 3.11 says, There is no other foundation that can be laid, but that which is already laid, the Lord Jesus Christ. We've talked before in our, in our other two segments about how so many shepherds today just have lost their way. They, uh, they're confused. They, they run with the tide. They have so many voices speaking to them, and they just don't know which way to go. Some have lost a tender conscience and have, sever, uh, you know, have found shipwreck to be their plight. Uh, I was reminded several months ago of a pastor who said that for years he had not had a relationship with God and uh, he had got hooked on some false teaching and, and away he went. So brethren, must stay close to the word of God, get into the word of God, let him get into you and to conform you. You know, Paul, again, as we've, we've said before, he said to the Thessalonians that he commended them for receiving the word of God is what it was, the word of God and not man. That effectively works in you who believe. So he starts out in saying, this is a faithful saying. If a man desires the position of an overseer, he desires a good work. I can think of no other greater calling I know in my own life that to expound the word of God, to, to shepherd God's people, not only in word, but in example, brethren, it's an, a life that calls for close scrutiny, a life that calls for accountability, and a life that calls of one that has lived years of, of sunshine as well as rain, the storms of life as well as the sunny days of life. For the one that's lived this way, the Lord proves himself utterly faithful. You know, the storms of life proves the durability of a boat if you're on the ocean. And just like that, the storms of life prove that the Lord Jesus Christ has us in the palm of his hands. He will not only not ever let us go, but he sometimes directs and allows these storms to produce the character that, that a good shepherd has to, uh, has to exhibit in his own life. You know, it's one thing to, to hear a great sermon or a great exposition of the Word of God, but it's doubly good to hear that exposition backed up by a life of, of character. If we desire this position, if a man desires something wonderful. But then he goes on to say, in verse 2, he says, A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous. One who rules his own household well, having his children in all submission. Let's go through a few of these things, brethren. You know, first of all, I want to want to talk about an overseer and the fact that only God can make and ordain an overseer, thus equipping him. You know, I want to direct our attention back to the first chapter 
when we looked at the first time we got together, uh, way back in chapter 1, verse 11, it says, According to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. The Apostle Paul is, is speaking to uh, to his young pastor, Timothy. And he's saying that God had entrusted Paul with the treasure of the gospel. Paul had made it his own. It was committed to him as a trust. And then we see in verse 12, the next verse, it says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has enabled me because he counted me faithful. He put me into the ministry. Christ enabled Paul. We see so many times in Paul's writings where it's by the grace of Christ he labored more than them all. And yet he also realized that he was the chief among sinners. So the humility mixed with the enabling by the Lord Jesus Christ is a powerful, powerful testimony to being born again, being raised from the dead. You know, it's... As a man goes about, we look at Peter's life, for example. And by the way, Peter says that he was an elder. And in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 3, Peter writes, The elders who are among you I exhort, who I am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also partaker of the glory that will be revealed. He says, Shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. You know, again, a man or a woman that looks at the pastor or whoever they're sitting under, they want the real thing. The man that sits in the pulpit, that teaches the word of God, that shepherds, that's his responsibility. God has laid upon his shoulders the responsibility of shepherding and guiding and guarding. And this isn't only as one is ordained by the Lord Jesus Christ himself, thus equipping him for his position. You know, back in Acts 20, when, you know, we've read that so many times, and we've, we're have we going to go through that quite a few times as we head through First and Second Timothy with Titus in between there, because it's so important today as we see pastors and teachers of the Word of God uh, going astray, not, not walking in integrity, losing their first love, and so forth. But remember when we looked at Acts 20 a couple times, how you could feel the anticipation and the uh, urgency of the message of, of Paul as he's leaving these Ephesian elders, these overseers. And he says to them, he says in verse 27 of chapter 20 of Acts, he said, For I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. And brethren, the whole counsel of God is the fact that we were dead in sin, completely dead in sin. And that the prophets have foretold a coming one who would take the sin of the world upon himself, that God himself would answer to the sin issue. That we are dead in sin and that the prophets all agree that the coming Messiah would be the one that would Take upon the sin of the world, that by believing in him, we are free from all things, and that by him rising from the dead, God is pleased with the sacrifice he laid down. But listen to this. He goes on to say, Therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God which you purchased 
with his own blood because he said that after this and after my departure, I know that there will be savage wolves, even among your own selves, that they won't spare the flock. They're going to lead disciples away after themselves instead of making disciples after the Lord Jesus Christ. And we've talked about this uh, on and on. You know, people have the idea that the more they've gone to seminary, the more PhDs they have, the more, you know, school of academics they have behind them. That's what makes the pastor. No, what makes the pastor and the overseer of the church is the Lord himself enables the one. And we must see that. You know, I believe that a man has been called to a pastorate and made a pastorate, true pastor, if that is indeed his calling, way before he ever enters seminary or ever enters a higher school of learning. Because it's character that the Lord Jesus Christ builds within him. No seminary, no higher learning can build his character. And as we're looking at the qualifications of an overseer or a pastor, look at what what Paul delves right into back in 1 Timothy 3. Again, the bishop must be blameless. What is blameless? Well, blameless simply means no serious charge can be brought against him. The character of an overseer must be full of integrity, always laying a path for others to follow. Not, not having a, an occasion or grounds to, be, to have accusation thrown at him, or, you know, true accusation. Of course, those the enemy is going to accuse the true and the obedient one who follows Christ, but that no serious charge is brought against him. And like, again, we're talking about the character of the overseer must be full of integrity, always laying a path for others to follow, walking in victory, walking the fellowship with Jesus Christ so that he may uh, comfort those but with the comfort he has received from the Lord himself. So blameless doesn't mean sinless. It means of character, of, of a non-accusing um, character. He must be the husband of one wife. Boy, this has brought on a lot of controversy and a lot of subjects. There's people out there that try to take this and, and say that um, all kinds of things. But for the man and woman that God, or excuse me, for the man that God calls him to the pastorate, this literally is saying that he must be a one-woman man, or a man of one woman. The overseer must not have been guilty of any unfaithfulness or irregularity in his marriage. His moral life must be above question. Now, brethren, let me go over, let me say that again. For you who, who are looking at the pastorate um, and are thinking about the pastorate, or again, as, as a young pastor, you may be struggling with some of these passages. The overseer must have not been guilty of any unfaithfulness or irregularity, irregularity in his marriage. His moral life must be above question. A one-woman man, one that has entered into relationship with his wife, forsaking all others. Likewise, as we see, the true shepherd has forsaken all others and has looked at the Lord Jesus Christ and will not turn to the right hand or to the left. 
you know, there's a passage in the book of Job where, where Job says about his integrity that he will not look upon another woman. That is, he made a covenant with his eyes. He made a covenant with his wife. He will not look upon another. The shepherd of a flock of God, the overseer, the pastor, the teacher of God's precious word, must be the husband of one wife, forsaking all others but her, having eyes for no other but her, having the three forms of protection that the husband must have only for her. He must protect her physically. He must protect her emotionally. He must protect her spiritually. These are the three avenues that the scriptures teach concerning a husband. The faithful shepherd, the faithful overseer, will produce these in his life. What a joy it is to be able to sit under somebody as they talk about the marriage and exemplify it in his own marriage, in his own life. And he will always attribute that to the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, we go on to the next uh, characteristic, temperate. Temperate, sober-minded. Webster defines temperate as a moderate in indulging the appetites, moderate in one's actions and speech, and he is self-restrained himself. He is cool under pressure. He doesn't react. He doesn't accuse. But yet his first response is, what does the scripture say? He's temperate in these things. He's sober-minded. Wow. He's not extreme or extravagant. He's prudent, capable of exercising sound judgment in practical matters. Because his groundwork has already been laid, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. He's of good behavior. My brother, I'm sorry to say that the world is too full of examples of of overseers and pastors that have fallen because their behavior has been one thing behind the pulpit and totally another thing uh, at home or away. Um, this ought not to be. We have a very good way of gauging what our true life is in public by our true life in private. You know, I'm wondering if some of us, if we could have somebody interview our wife without us ever knowing it, what she would truly say. Our public life should be no different than our private life, brethren. We need to watch what we look at. We need to watch what we think about. We need to watch who we hang out with, who we get our guidance from. We need to be of good behavior, of excellent behavior. You know, when you look at the fruit of the Spirit uh, and the behavioral aspect of character as we're looking at we flip over to galatians chapter 5 and we see that paul is describing the fruit of the spirit and if you don't see the fruit of the spirit brethren characterized in a pastor then you must question because paul says it's the fruit singular of the spirit it's a love joy peace long-suffering kindness goodness faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. This is against these things. There is no law. Wow. Behavior. 
You know, that's something that we need to watch as a pastor. It's something we need to exhibit as a pastor. Brethren, your words are only as good as your actions. Your message and expounding the word of God should be going out with power. And that power that goes out should also be exhibited in your life. There are two passages that I've mentioned earlier I want to bring up again regarding character. And I will leave you with these before we go on. Both of them are found in Hebrews chapter 13. But I want to tell you to the, to the young pastor who might be listening to me now. These are explicitly regarding those who teach the word of God. They, they could go in other ways, for example. But listen to these two passages. One is in Hebrews 13 verse 7. It says, remember those who rule over you who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their conduct. Now, it's well been said before of, of so many people who have an ambition to be in the pulpit. They see People see them as spiritual giants in the church, and yet at home they're, they're wife and the kids are starving for godly guidance and example. The other part I want to bring is, is uh, Hebrews 13, verse 13. Therefore let us go forth to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. Bearing his reproach. It says, obey those who rule over you. This is verse 17. Obey those who rule over you and be submissive. Listen to this, brethren, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give an account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. James says, my brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. And as you know, in James chapter 3, you're talking about the tongue. It's not only... When we slip and say and say things slanderously or, or words we shouldn't say or whatever, but it's also using the tongue, exhibiting and proclaiming the word of God. Serious business, but you know, brethren, it's just, it's a calling that will fill you with joy. A calling that is full of meaning and purpose. You know, I can. I can sell shoes all day, and that's great. It will give somebody shoes, but they wear out. But I expound the Word of God, and we, we teach the Word of God. We teach it in, in power and authority, because our authority comes from the Word of God. It comes from the Lord Jesus Christ. Our power comes from the indwelling Holy Spirit. We change lives for eternity. For eternity, brethren. So again... I go back to an overseer must be blameless. The husband of a one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach. He's hospitable. He, he is transparent, brethren. He invites people into his home. He is wants people to see. I remember when I was a young Christian desiring to teach the Word of God, I had a pastor who... who would just invite me over to his house. Sometimes we'd just sit there and have tea. Sometimes we'd just sit there and talk. And I realize now, many years later, 
that he was showing me and inviting me into his home. And I could see how the man of God lived outside the pulpit, treating his wife, treating his conversation, treating his time. He was hospitable. Always bringing those into your company that might be less fortunate. You know, I remember when Jesus first started his ministry, the disciples said, Master, where are you staying? And instead of saying, well, you know, we'll meet another time, now's not a good time, or whatever, the Lord Jesus Christ said, come and see. Always bidding them, come and see. Hospitable and able to teach. I've had people say to me, well, that's kind of a, an interesting list of things that they should be in, uh, of an overseer. Of course an overseer should be able to teach. You know, some people have no business being in the pulpit. You know, there's some people that, that, that try to expound the Word of God and they, they have not been into the Word of God themselves. You know, the Bible says, as we'll see as we get through these Timothy epistles, Paul is admonishing Timothy to study, to show himself approved as a workman that does not need to be ashamed rightly dividing the word of truth. Brethren, are you teaching people how to read the word of God? Are you showing people the necessity of how each part of the word intricately fits into the other? 66 books, yet each book is complete in itself, having one congruent thing, God's perfect remedy in Jesus Christ. Wow. Able to teach, rightly dividing the word of truth. You know, Paul says, I don't I won't teach anything, won't say anything unless Christ has wrought it in me first. That's why we not we need to realize that God is desiring that he would raise up men and women to listen to good, sound, biblical teaching. That men and women would learn from good, sound, solid, spirit-filled, controlled pastors that have been through the good times as well as the bad times, the sunshine and the storms of life. They're able to teach. You know, it's a it's a precedent that I've lived by, and I've, I believe that the Bible teaches us in so many words that a shepherd can only lead his congregation or his flock, as far as he has gone himself. Let's get into the Word of God, brethren. Let it get into us. Able to teach. We don't want to sit under somebody that's given to wine. Not violent. Greedy for money. I'm sorry to say, there's, there's people out there today that are money-hungry, supposedly pastors, supposedly teachers out there. We all know. We've all heard of them. They pump out the best books. They are on TV. They're on. They're wanting your money. They have jets. They have million-dollar homes. They have this and they have that, and that puts a damper on people that need so desperately a touch from God. You know, brethren, there are those that are out there that God's going to send your way, that are hungry, that are open to truth. Jesus doesn't want their money. He doesn't want your money. He wants your heart. He wants your life. He wants your integrity. So you're not greedy for money, but you're gentle. You're not quarrelsome. You're not covetous. 
You know, the Word of God, I love it. It effectually does its work in you who believe. You know, it, it stands to reason, brethren, that we do not need, we do not need to vindicate the Word of God. The Word of God is its own best authority. It's its own commentary, if you will. Again, I'll just tell you the uh, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, I want to just read this again. For this reason, we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it, not as the word of men, but it is in truth the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. Brethren, we are called as pastors to faithfully give out the Word of God, to faithfully teach the Word of God and allow it do, to do its work. You faithfully feed the Word of God and you leave the outcome to God Himself. You just be faithful. You just preach the Word and the Word alone. We stand on the Bible, nothing but the Bible, the Bible alone. What authority! There is no greater authority than this. You know, some men stand on the authority that they've gotten from some seminary or some higher form of learning. No, the authority that we stand on is the Word of God. We don't quarrel about it. We don't fight about it. We don't seek anything of it other than spiritual fruit. Jesus said that he desires that we have fruit, much fruit, now that we remain, that the Father would be glorified. Think of verse 4, brethren, one who rules his own house well, having his children in submission. Ruling his own household well. Going back again to my illustration, do, do people in church see you as a spiritual giant? Yet at home, your family, your wife are starving for spiritual guidance. You know, children want rules. Children want an authority figure. You pastors, your children don't need another friend. They need a father, a disciplinarian. Children. It's hard to lead a flock of sheep if you can't have any idea or clue as to what your role is in the house. I think a lot of men fall short in this area. Look at verse 5. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? Let's move on quickly, brethren. Verse 6. Not a novice. We've talked about this before. Not a new convert. Lest being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. You know, I, I about 30 years ago, I had so desperately wanted to, to teach the word. And, and so I had a Bible study. Um, I believe it was on a Monday night, I'm not sure, but Monday after Monday after Monday, nobody came, and nobody came. I had a faithful sister who supported me, and, and uh, boy, I just was getting frustrated and frustrated, and, and finally after about six months, the weight of it just got to be too much, and I, I canceled my study, and, and uh, I went around thinking, well, maybe, that's, maybe this is not what God wants me to do, but I couldn't get it out of my heart and my mind that that's what I wanted to do was to teach. I wasn't ready, brethren. I was a new convert. I was a new Christian. I hadn't learned the deeper things of the Christian life. I wasn't in a position 
to feed the Word of God. There's a lot of people out there that are puffed up with pride and that their idea is, you better do what I tell you to do because I'm the pastor or I'm graduated from seminary or whatever. And he gets puffed up with pride instead of being humble. You know, Jesus said, if you want to be the greatest, you have to serve. The pastor comes underneath the people and lift them up with the word of God and example and prayer and godly guidance. Not a novice, but one who has, has been seasoned by the Lord, not puffed up with pride. And they'd fall into the same condemnation of the devil. You know, that's an interesting uh, phraseology, if you will, that Paul uses. But we won't get into that too much here. But I just want to, real quick, and we all know these passages. I want to go to Isaiah 14 real quick and just expound on some of these things that, that we see. And what we talk about, the overthrow of Lucifer, the pride and the rebellion, just listen to some of these things. Listen, as I read out of Isaiah 12, real quick, or excuse me, chapter 14, verse 12, it says, How you have fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you have weakened the nations. Listen to this, brethren. You have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt the throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High God. You see that, brethren? I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. All signs of pride, of I'm going to do it. I'm going to accomplish this. You know, the man in the pulpit that God wants to use the most, God has, has crushed and and bruised, if you will, the most. Allow God to put you, young pastor, on his anvil, and he will hammer out his his character into you, and you will you will blossom and you will come forth as an example and a true ambassador of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not puffed up with pride, because the only pride that we have is in the grave, and Jesus left it there when he rose again. Praise God. He says in verse 7, Moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into the approach and the snare of the devil. A good testimony of those who are outside, brethren, outside the church. How do people view you? How do your neighbors view you? How do, you, how do your in-laws view you? How do those that you rub shoulders with every day view you? Are you one of these people that, that are judgmental? Are you snobby? Are you supposed to be uh, representing Christ, but yet you're, uh, you're snappy and you're sarcastic and you whisper and backbite, talk about your neighbors, yell at your neighbors, or what have you. You must have a good reputation outside. Very, very appealing to those that see you. They might not agree with you, but they must say in their heart, there's something different about that man. Something different. You know, you remember in Acts chapter 4, this is one of the great, great verses, I believe, right after Jesus had, had ascended. You know, it's, and what was happening is that Peter and John were going around and they were preaching the gospel. And they were, they, they, uh, I'll start in, in verse 11. I'll read 11 and 12 and 13 of Acts 4. 
But Peter quotes, I love this, he quotes one, Psalm 118, he says, This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which was, had become the chief cornerstone. And then he says this, he says, Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given amongst men by which we must be saved. Now, brethren, before I go on to the 13th verse, this is a message they violently did not want to hear. This is the message that that would get them probably martyred. Jesus had just been crucified. He had risen from the dead. He had descended to the Father. The Sanhedrin was the that's the last thing that they wanted to hear. He tells them, "Listen, there's no there's salvation, no salvation." any other, for there is no other name given amongst heaven by which men must be saved. And look what the response of the Sanhedrin was. Verse 13, brethren, it says, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled, listen to this, and they realized that they had been with Jesus. Our character, it, something about being with Jesus changes us. It humbles us. It, it gives us a character that is is blameless. It's beyond some reproach, you know. And those that see us might not even agree, or they might not come to Christ, but they must realize that there's something different about that man. He doesn't walk the course of the world. You know why, brethren? Because Jesus said that they, talking about us, are no more of the world, even as I. Am not of the world. Did you catch that? Jesus made the statement that we are no part of the world because he is no part of the world. That's identification. Being with Jesus changes a man. So those that are outside, they see you. You're not like other men. You're not quarrelsome. You're not fighting to get your way. You're not fighting to prove yourself. You're not. You're not just running headless in circles in the world like other people are. You're peaceful. You 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 have that mooring about you. You're not running to and fro. You're filled with peace. And men are gonna wonder and marvel at that. What a witness. I love that fact, brethren. And then he goes into verses eight down talking about deacons. You know, a good deacon, we read about that. You could read about in Acts chapter 7 and so forth, talking about Stephen. And, and we could see it in Acts chapter 8, talking about Philip as well. He, Philip was an evangelist. And, and these men, different groups of men, but they're blameless. We look at Stephen in Acts chapter 7. Remember when, when the apostles said, you know, we don't have time to serve tables. So they broke off with people and they... And they picked out men that were filled with the Spirit to, to minister to the growing church there in Jerusalem. Very interesting because, again, that's character and that's serving. That's that servitude attitude. And Jesus said, I did not come to be served, but to serve and give my life a ransom for many. So we serve, and by serving, we give our life for our for the, for the brethren, we give our life for those that would, would inherit eternal life and follow Christ. And I love that. 
because deacons must be reverent, not double-tongued, verse 8, not given to much wine, again, not greedy for money, holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. That's interesting. Holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. Great is the mystery of godliness. We're going to see at the end of this chapter. I don't want to jump ahead, but but uh, we'll see that in a little bit. Let's move on, brethren. Let those, verse 10, be first tested, and let them serve as deacons, being, again, found blameless. Blameless is not a sinless man, but blameless is one who has a moral character that has been polished by the Lord Jesus Christ himself through the power of the Spirit. That's what blameless is. No accusation. We can't accuse anybody of, of being of stealing or uh, lying or adultery. I remember one time years ago, I have a certain color of truck, and, and we had just moved to an area, and, and a, uh, a co-worker was working with my wife, and one day saw a truck that a man had that looked just like mine, and he had another woman on the other side sitting right next to him, and, and she... Uh, and she, she said, I, I just have to tell you, I saw your, your, your husband with another woman. Well, my wife knows better and just kind of chuckled it off and, and because she knew. I have not given her an occasion nor reason to accuse or to appoint a finger, brethren. I've been blameless in her eyes. And likewise, that is such a rare commodity today, and I urge you, to ask the Lord to give you power and strength to change you, to be a man of integrity, to walk the way that Jesus walked, always doing those things that please the Father. You know that Jesus said at the end of his ministry, he looked at the Pharisees and the religious leaders and he said, which of you can convict me of sin? We know that the deacons must be, again, only one woman man, not slanderers, not temperate, but faithful in all things, running their own households well. We want to have a good standing before the people. We need to know these things because, again, we're this is the ground and the pillar of the truth. We're looking at servants mainly the pastor, but yet we have deacons, ones that serve, ones that the that take on the servitude so that the pastor might lead and feed while the servants, as far as the deacons go, might exercise the service of the church. He says in verse 15, But if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how to conduct yourselves in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground, of the truth. The church, brethren, as a whole today in America, I'm sad to say, has left the fact that it should be the pillar and ground of the truth. We have seeker-friendly churches now. We have churches that have lost the way, that are more into entertaining men, that are getting numbers, that, that are doing things, instead of being the pillar and ground of the truth. You know, way back, I believe it was A.W. Tozer who said that uh, the hardest thing is to get people to come to church when they know that, that God is the main attraction. And that was said, brethren, I believe, back in the 50s or very early 60s. 
How much more so today? We should be constantly dredging forth as an ox, plowing and plowing and plowing with the strength that God gives us. And here's the reason, brethren, verse 16, and I'll end with this verse. I've heard and very much enjoyed our time together today, and I, I pray that it would be an encouragement to you that we, as we go along these studies, we're going to see that, the, that God calls men, that Jesus Christ ordains men into the ministry, calls men. We need to, be, we need to heed his calling and follow him. Look at verse 16, brethren, and without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. This is without controversy. In other words, this is, this is not negotiable. This is not up for debate. This is not up for speculation. It's not up for anything other than what it is, the truth. Look at this, without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh. John says that's the spirit of Antichrist is when they deny that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. That's the spirit of Antichrist. But here we see, brethren, that, that the pastor is to, this is the way it is, this is the truth, and nothing but the truth, and that is what we are to teach, and that is what we are to stand on, this mystery of godliness, that God was manifested in the flesh. He was justified in the Spirit. He was seen by angels. He was preached on among the Gentiles. He was believed on in the world. And he was received up in glory. He's preached among the Gentiles. You know that the prophets said that he was a light to the Gentiles. He would be believed. Jesus said, if I lift myself up from the earth, all men will know that I am he. He was believed on in the world. You know, everywhere in the world, not all are converted, but there are some in every parts of the world, every, you know, decade and, and year that we go the course of this life, there are some from all parts of the world that are believing in him to eternal life. And why would they believe in him to eternal life? How will we know that we have eternal life? You know, there's so many, much speculations about what it means to please God. How do we know? How do I know that I am saved? How do I know that God is pleased? Well, Paul, Paul in his first chapter of Romans, he says an amazing thing. He said, called to be an uh, apostle separated in the gospel of God, which he promised before through the prophets and the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh. Listen to this, brethren. And declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead. We're, he's believed on in the world we are born-again Christians because he was received up into glory. God raised him from the dead, and now he's seated at the right hand of God, and he intercedes for us. He's in the presence of the Father for us, the Bible says. Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man. Today, we must hear the cross in the pulpit the Apostle Paul, who is instructing his young pastor, 
says this to the Corinthians, I believe. I want to know nothing among you save Christ and him crucified. We are saved by the gospel and the gospel alone. As we go next time, when we get together, brethren, and we get into chapter 4, we start shifting a little bit of a different avenue of what the pastor needs to teach. Some are going to depart from the faith. Some are going to give heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. We're going to get into that quite extensively next time in our visit. You know, Timothy was very fond of Paul and, and uh, was commended by Paul for, for going with him on his work. He sat under Paul. He saw Paul and, and the things Paul went through. We are going to see as we go on, especially to end the second Timothy, the feverish pitch that Paul had as he was entering the twilight of his life. He knew that, that his time had come, that his martyrdom was soon. And as he's speaking to young Timothy, as much as, as we need to hear today, that he is urgent that Timothy would hang in there and preach nothing but the truth, be ready in and out of season, to not bend, you know, to be uh, that same ongoing character, not bending, not bending for anything, and standing up for the truth, and being an example, being filled with love. I think the true pastor today has no other greater calling. You know, I, I remember, and I'll close with a statement of the late Dr. Barnhouse says he was going uh, on one of his conference tours, um, and I believe I had mentioned this before, but it's, I know it's been true in my life, and I've seen it true in, in all pastors' life, true pastoring, and true pastors that I have seen and fellowshiped with. The woman came up to Dr. Barnhouse and said, My son wants to be a pastor and a teacher just like you. And Dr. Barnhouse looked at the mother and said, If little Johnny, if he could be content with being anything else, whether it be a fireman, a banker, a doctor, what have you, then that's what he should be. If he could be content being anything else, God probably has not called him to be a pastor. High calling? Yes. In, utterly impossible on our own strength, but very possible and probable and very, very uh, worthwhile to give our life to the ministry. Brethren, has God called you into the ministry? Hang in there with us with these messages. Explore the word in these epistles with us. And I think we'll become away with a refreshed understanding of the true pastor and how he is to live and teach. And our God and Father, I thank you that you have given us your word and that we are attentive to it. And I pray that this would add not only encouragement, but accountability to those of us who you have called to feed your precious word, to be an example of the God we so graciously serve. And Father, I praise you and I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. I'll look forward to next time together, brethren. Until then, God bless you. She loves much because she is calm and she understands she's been forgiven a boatload of sin. And by that very nature, she loves much. Ah, love. There we go.
We're back in 1 John 4.10, and again, and this is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be a propitiation for our sins. And I will end at verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Propitiation. Talked about that before. It was a propitiated sacrifice. What that means is that he laid down a sacrifice, the only sacrifice that God will accept on your and mine's behalf. There is only one way to God. There is only one sacrifice that will get us there. And Jesus Christ laid it down and paid it to the full. And God was pleased that Christ died in your place by raising him from the dead. And by believing in that, you are born from above. Your sins are forgiven you. We overcame them by the blood of the Lamb. By that very nature, we are born again by the very love that God had for me by sending Christ in my place. That love is now residing within me. (laughs) How can we tell the difference between one who knows God and one doesn't. How can we have a surety in our hearts that we're born again? The Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. What does the Spirit always do? Point us to Christ. Point us to Christ. Jesus said he loved his own and he loved them to the end. Wow. God always has his remnant, his body. And they will walk in in love. And I believe that there's been so much ridicule of the Christian church uh, in the, the, well, you know, as I've said before, you know, I've been a Christian for a while. Just in the three decades that I've known Christ, I've seen such a, a shift in things. You know, once that was things that were solid now aren't solid, you know. Uh, churches that used to be known for their uh, their faith and their standing on the rock are now being shifted and now don't teach the things they used to. But that's no cause for alarm for us, for you and I, because we know that God, we are safe in Him. We don't want that Elijah syndrome, you know, where he goes into the cave and he says, man, I, I'm alone that's left. That's now. I have, you know, reserved for me those that have not bowed the knee to anything else. So, beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. And I'll end with this statement Jesus said in John 10 10. The thief only comes to kill still, and destroy. But I have come that you might not only have life, but that you might have it abundantly, joyously. The one that knows Christ may sound alarming, may be watching on the wall. You read about, uh, you know, Jeremiah, especially Ezekiel. They sent him as a watchman on the wall. And God said, you know, if, if you see that, we see in Ezekiel chapter 3 and verses 33, or chapter 33 and elsewhere, you know, if you see that, if you hear the sound of the trumpet, the warning, and you give faithful warning, and men turn, great. If they don't turn, the blood's on their own hands. But if you hear the warning, or you see the warning, and you hear the trumpet, 
and you don't warn them, their blood is on your head. And we don't have time to turn there because I said we were done. But you look in Acts chapter 20, and that's exactly what the Apostle Paul says to the Ephesian elders. He says, I've taught, taught you nothing but things that will be proffered you. I am innocent of the blood of all men. And that is what he means there. He's innocent of the blood of all men. He's heard the trumpet. He sees the, the, the thing come, the judgment coming and the warning coming. And he is sound. He pleaded day and night for three years with tears. The whole counsel of God. He says, I'm innocent of the blood of all men. And yet, we know Paul was, was, well, he wrote Philippians, and some call that the epistle of joy. But, but did that guy have joy? Absolutely. Did Peter have joy? Absolutely. He wrote about the joy inexpressible and full of glory. Did John have joy? Oh, yeah. It was serious. And I, I promise you I will end with this. One of my favorite sayings or writings of Peter's writing. But the end, this is 1 Peter 4, 7. But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be silly. Hey, and therefore, party with Jesus. No. He says the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful unto prayers. But how does he close that? Listen to this next verse. But above all things, have fervent love for one another. For love covers a multitude of sins. Brethren, there's more to this Christian life than just knowing doctrine and it's knowing Him. And it's understanding that He is so desirous to make Himself known. That's how John opens up his first epistle about fellowship. You have seen and heard and declared to you that you also may have fellowship with us and truly our fellowship is with the Father and the Son. He said, these things we write to you that, so that your joy may be full. We need to be serious about these times and about what we say and what we do. Pray, please. Lord God, we thank you for your word that you've spoken today. We want to be serious and, and know you, Lord. And we ask that you, you reveal yourselves through the, the word. And we ask that we, you put it in our hearts for us to get in the word every day. Not just at Bible study or at church, Lord but have fellowship with you every single day. And we ask that you go before us throughout our week, throughout our day, and prepare the way for us, Lord. And give us the will to 
do your will. In the name of Jesus, amen. Beginning of this, he's describing a man who's been born again that as he goes to the Oriental bathhouse and says he takes a bath, he's cleansed from all unrighteousness, and yet when he's walking back to the house, his feet will acquire defilement, and this washes feet. But he himself is clean from all that the law could say or accuse him. And it's beautiful, because that's what we are. And when we have defilement, we confess our sins to the Lord Jesus Christ. He's wise, he's just, because he took the condemnation himself. He fulfilled every bit of the law for you and I. And he also took the condemnation and the judgment for the breaking of that law for you and I. So he's just. Listen to these words. If we confess our sins, our defilement, he is faithful and just, forgives our sins and cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Wow. Keep on sinning. Wow. We can't because we've been born of God. Nor do you need to. You know? That's what separates biblical Christianity from all the other religions in the world. And I only say religion as far as Christianity is just by means of comparison. By no means does the Bible talk favorably about religion. Religion is always the outward show. We as baptism and one baptized in the body, we show the world what has already happened and taken place on the inside. That's the meaning of baptism. So when you go baptize in the river wherever you get, you show the world. When I was baptized in Corleone Bay in North Lake Tahoe, I was signifying to the world and to my parents, something has happened to me. I believe this gospel. I believe this word of God. My sins have been, I've been forgiven. That Jesus Christ is now my Lord. I'm not my Lord anymore. I walked to a different drumbeat, and that's to him. And I've never looked back. And I'm thankful I haven't. Because Paul says that, you know, you can run a race. And if you run it in such a way, there's a, there's a reward. and There's a crown waiting for you. And I want that crown. And I want that reward. I want to see my Lord. I'm expecting to see him. I want to see him. I can't wait to see him. Because I know that when I see him, I will be with him forever. I just want to end these verses probably for my own sake. Because right now, folks, I think that is a time for comfort. I think that, you know, you can read these verses and you can look at sin so much you can tend to get, uh, feel like you've getting pummeled with things. And it's not the fact that we pummel because somebody's life might not be as righteous as mine. But we admonish these things so that we might see that the Lord desires that we have nothing in the way of Him. You know? We even say it in our wedding vows. You forsake all others. You know, I remember talking, you know, we did Jen and Joe's wedding. You know, you, are you willing to forsake all others? Okay. What does that mean? Well, there's not too many. There's, there are people out there, but there, most people don't actually commit the physical adultery maybe on their wife, but they sure do in so many other ways. And if that's true in the physical realm of of relationships down here, it's more it's more uh, abundant with our Christian life. There are so many things, the devil and everything is clamoring for our attention. The flesh wears its ugly head when you don't think it will. 
The moment you think you've got everything under control, here it comes. Look out. The moment you think you've been having a pretty good day, man, and you've talked to a couple people about Christ, one might have given his life for Christ, and you're relishing in the, in the glow of it, watch out. You know, let's make up our mind now. So when it comes, you're dealing with it. I am my beloved's, and my beloved's mine. That's, that's my wife and I's verse out of uh, Song of Solomon, chapter 7. But listen to this. I'm going to leave you with the, with the first six verses of, of the discourse in John 14. It says, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions, or many rooms, or dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go and prepare a place for you. He's going and preparing a place for you, for me, individually. You know, as a corporate part of his body, he loves you. He's going to tailor this for you. I believe this with all my heart. Because my God's like that. He loves us individually. He's tailoring a place for you, exactly what you want. You know, people down here, they want to find the perfect house. And, you know, I mean, we've been selling our house for almost a year now. I know. I mean, for all kinds of things. Oh, you know, it's great, but we want this. Oh, it's great. He is tailoring something, I believe, with all my heart, that is going to just dazzle us for eternity. I can't wait to see that. He loves you. And, and we flirt with sin? In my Father's house, are, again, are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. And I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That's the heart of the Lord Jesus Christ. He wants you with Him. And we're going we're gonna to forsake that in sin? We're going to forsake that and, and entertain uh, pride and, and, and everything else? Is it tough? Hey, did anybody say the Christian life was going to be easy? Paul says, I die daily. So he's going to go prepare this fantastic place. You know, I don't have to worry about, well, hey, you know, is it going to be something I want? It will be exactly what I was designed to love and to dwell in, because that's who God is. And if I go and prepare a place for you again, he says, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. And you know, and where I, I go, you know, the way you know. Thomas says, Lord, we do not know where the way you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus takes it from the material to the spiritual. Life. Life is not this. Life is Him. We don't know where you're going to go. Leave us a map or something. You know, let us know. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except by me. Wow. Lord, um, 
the Lord has shown me the last, well, when I really understood where we're going, and the time is short for, for us here, but I love you guys, and that's my heart. That's the heart of the Lord, and I, I, I would be, you know, I used to tell my sons, if you don't tell somebody the truth, you're not really being a truthful friend to them. And there's so much more to this life than just what meets the eye. You know, they say that those that are suffer great loss, suffer problems in their life. I mean, uh, we've all had tragedy, death, uh, whatever. That those who, who, who stick to the Lord and allow Him to take them through them find an intimacy with Him that most people don't. But we also understand the Bible talks about those that give up their life, that give up what they, they don't need, and they grab what they cannot afford to lose. There's an intimacy and a joy there that the Bible talks about that few nowadays know about, few as far as the masses go. And that's what we want. Father, I just thank you for this morning. I thank you for the word. And Lord, but I, I thank you for the Lord of the Word. It so eloquently points to who you are and your character. Father, I pray that if there are those listening that have not surrendered everything, intellect, pride, um, whatever to you, that they would do it. Because it, nobody needs to be taught. It's the Spirit that teaches us to abide in Christ pray that would be their lot, because what is it worth if man gains a whole world and that you know, loses? What is a game? If we have 20 more days left and we, we live it half-heartedly, I pray that we would, we, would, we would consider and accept nothing less than excellency, nothing less than the Word of God operating in our life. Again, I thank you for this day, and I pray that you would go with us as we go, and give us joy that our joy might be full. Father, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.